So we're talking about how we conceive of body dysmorphic disorder and by extension wider mental health issues mm -hmm. as in do we see them as disorders or is there another way of looking at them which doesn't minimize or diminish the level of suffering they cause um, but sees them not just as say chemicals going wrong in the brain and causing this um this disorder to arise but rather maybe um something that's crying out for attention from within what's your feeling on that nicole yeah i think it's a really important consideration this consideration of our mental illnesses are things that people get diagnosed with. Are they organic chemical disorders? Are they in fact disorders of some description? Or as you say, is there another way of potentially looking at them? I think for some people, some of the time in some situations, actually diagnosis of a condition can be really helpful. Um, so some people, I know when we run groups for people that have a diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder, for example, often they'll say that they were really relieved when they received that diagnosis because A, they didn't feel so alone because there was a sense of there are other people that have these experiences and therefore have get the same label that I've been given. Also a sense of relief that, well, maybe I'm not just ugly then maybe I have a, a disorder that's more about my perception than it is about my physical appearance and therefore you know it can be quite relieving to be told you have a mental health condition and can consider that perhaps it's not about the perceived defect you think you might have in the case of BDD or um, the perceived ugliness you might experience and then of course people um, find that they get access to services if they have a diagnosis. So it's just the unfortunate, perhaps, way that society is set up or psychiatry is set up. That if we have, you know, on our medical records, a diagnosis of some description, we're more likely to have funding for the treatment. And also it might map onto what kind of treatment. So, you know, if I end up with a diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder, um, I'm more likely to get treatment that has been deemed to be directed towards that and of course CBT um, and um, SSRIs, these serotonin reuptake inhibitors are most likely in that diagnosis. So I guess kind of just to lay out the, the usefulness of, the, of diagnosis to begin our conversation. Yeah, I can totally see that if... Um if you've got what perhaps your family and friends perceive as this weird thing and you perceive as this weird thing where you're, let's say in the case of body dysmorphia, stuck in a mirror for several hours a day and no one knows why and it appears maybe like vanity or something and then all of a sudden you get a diagnosis that someone says, no, there's this, there's this actual thing yeah. called BDD and you have it and that's why you have these behaviours. I can see why that um, you know, comes as a, a massive relief potentially. Mm. Um, and that could be true in, in for any mental illness in yeah. coming out in different ways. Um, I suppose what I'm zooming in on here is the the term disorder. Mm -hmm. 
and taking that in the sense of this is something that it would be best if we could just get rid of. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, if I could take a tablet or something that would restore quote unquote normality um, in my mind, that would be the solution or go through some course like CBT say mm-hmm. and say, okay, these thoughts are wrong and move on from that. And and whether that's the case or not depends on, on what you think the condition is then. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you were at, um, part of, part of the thing that spurred this conversation between us is you were at a conference in the United States recently on hearing voices. Um, and it was kind of, a, if I'm getting it right, a, a peer support group yeah. Yeah. that had come to conceptualize what was going on with voice hearing and um, hearing like intrusive voices in one's own mind that don't feel like one's own voice. They've come to conceptualize that differently and not being as a disorder. Can you speak to that a bit and, and tell yeah. me your experience of that? Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's this whole movement, the hearing voice must hearing voices movement is part of that but there's a whole movement around the conceptualization of psychiatric diagnosis um, that's very fascinating and I think a really important facet of this experience of mental illness Um, so with the hearing voices network who have congresses all over the world and this year happened to be in Boston in the summer and I went along they are very much of the opinion of and they really lobby for this understanding of the diagnosis of schizophrenia as being um, unhelpful and and even more than unhelpful not necessarily even being true so they very much believe that a descriptive term i.e voice hearing is much more useful because when you say someone is a schizophrenic Um, there's all kinds of assumptions that come with that. There's firstly the assumption that there is a thing called schizophrenia that that exists, that has some kind of biological organic basis in some way, that is absolutely airtight, quantifiable, i.e. you've got schizophrenia, you haven't. It's very clear-cut. And that doesn't... The big thing about the Hearing Voices Network is that the diagnosis of schizophrenia doesn't necessarily or can rather dangerously negate a person's experiences so and it's the same with any diagnosis as soon as you say to somebody you have schizophrenia or you have clinical depression or you have body dysmorphic disorder you're it becomes a within person thing it's something that you have and the likelihood of asking the question, what is your story? What have your life experiences been that have led you to hear voices or have led you to spend six hours a day looking in the mirror? Um, Those questions are less likely to be asked. It's more likely that a psychiatrist or a clinician or whoever might be working with that person will look at the file when they will see schizophrenia and they'll think, oh, I know what that is. This person has these symptoms and this treatment would be the best for their symptoms. And similarly with BDD, oh, this person has body dysmorphic disorder. I know what that is. I know how it manifests itself. I get that and I can, I can provide these treatments and then this person is likely to um, find relief from their symptoms, which may or may not be the case. Um, but I think the core argument is one around 
do these things, do these disorders, do these conditions exist in actuality or are they subjective? Are they ultimately the opinion of um, the people that diagnose them? And of course, it's culturally bound, it's societally bound. Um, you know, you, I would be more likely with symptoms of voice hearing, to use that example, to be diagnosed as a schizophrenic in the West. Whereas perhaps in, in somewhere like Eastern Africa, I'd be more likely to be diagnosed, labelled um, as a, a shaman maybe or as a healer, or as a mystic. Sure. Well, there's, there's plenty of people in the West too who hear voices and interpret that yeah. uh, not as mental dysfunction, but as mediumship or um, channeling Absolutely. whatever kind of entity or in, in different ways, like some creative part of the brain mm. coming through. Yeah. And not just um, the comparatively small number of people that define themselves that way, mm. but some astronomical percentage of the population um by the time we we get old um experience some form of after-death communication mm-hmm. okay when a loved one passes away i think for bereaved uh, for widows it's in the 60 odd percent of the pop of widows experience something that may come in the form of um, a vision or it may well come in the form of hearing the deceased person's voice so it permeates across society and isn't always given that interpretation of being schizophrenia or something uh, dysfunctional so how have the people um the group at the conference you attended how have they um reinterpreted their own condition away from being schizophrenia or away from being uh, a negative thing or a dysfunction um they they conceptualize it as a response to experiences that they've had i think it was rd lang that said um how how was it put Uh, that mental illness or however it was put is a um sane response to an insane reality Um, and you could say that the experience of hearing a voice um is is the same response to an insane reality and people tell their stories and they tell stories of trauma they tell stories of abuse, they tell stories of um, unthinkable suffering and pain. And they explain the voices quite often, or the visions or the sensory experiences as being um, not only a direct response to those experiences, but somehow an invitation back to wholeness, somehow an invitation to address the things that they've experienced, and, and an invitation to integrate those experiences. So, and therefore they find it more helpful to use a descriptive term for themselves, i.e. I am a voice hearer, as opposed to saying I am a schizophrenic and therefore um, I have this experience that actually isn't an uncommon human experience to hear voices. Um, And that that says something about my life's journey so far. It isn't because I was born defective. It isn't because there's something amiss with my brain. It isn't because I have a chemical imbalance. Because actually we don't have any real evidence for any of those things. Okay, so the conversation this sparked with us then was um, there's a a kind of an obvious uh, or or an already trodden path with something like voice hearing because people already do interpret um, hearing voices in a, a, 
a range of different ways. Yeah. But if we're looking at something like um, body dysmorphia or another mental health issue, how is that transferable or comparable? Is it the same way? And, and I know in your experience and in your book, you wrote about a movement from fighting against these kind of conditions and trying to battle and overcome them to an integration, to seeing um, the body dysmorphia as, um, well, I'll let you um, say it, but something like flagging up something deeper that was going on or an invitation to ask deeper questions. So how do you see um, the kind of thing we've just been discussing with the Hearing Voices community as transferable into different areas? Yeah, thank you, Richard. Um, I think it's hugely transferable. I think on a purely pragmatic, biological basis, it's transferable in that we also don't have any direct um, evidence, if you like. We have no biomarkers for something like body dysmorphic disorder in terms of any hypothesis that it might be an imbalance of serotonin or it might be um, in some way brain-based. So in that way, um, comparable. Also comparable in the sense of um, it, it seems to me that it emerges, and my experience is it emerges through a certain journey, a certain life journey, that often does involve some level of um, very difficult experiences, perhaps some level of trauma, depending on how the person conceptualises trauma. Um, and therefore that the, the symptoms... So you could say the symptoms of voice hearing are a direct result or, in, or at least partially a result of the experiences people have had in their lives. You can say the same for body dysmorphic disorder, that a person comes to be so fixated on a perceived defect in their appearance because of some of the life experiences that they've had and not because there's something intrinsically, biologically defective or present within them. And then there's this aspect of an invitation, the idea that the voices, if you really listen to them, um, as opposed to running away from them or being terrified of them, which is totally understandable. I mean, it must be a very terrifying experience. Um, but to listen to them and ask them what message they've come to bring, that actually the message, as we mentioned earlier, is an invitation back to um, integration, wholeness, self-acceptance and, and love of the self. And it seems to me that, um, I mean, we could talk about anything, but we're talking about body dysmorphic disorder here, that in the very same way, that's an invitation back. So um, I guess to put it really simply, if I was to kind of conceptualise my diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder as a sense of my own ugliness, you know, the sense of I am ugly and I am, I am bad um, intrinsically as a person, then... That could be seen as a bad thing. In the same way that voices could be seen as a bad thing, that could be seen as a bad thing. Well, I shouldn't be feeling ugly. Um, that's pathological. That's wrong. I need to get rid of this sense of ugliness and then everything's going to be okay. In the same way that I need to get rid of the voices and everything will be okay. But kind of the way I've found my way through this and the way I've understood others have also found their way through is to, is to listen to that ugliness what message is that ugliness trying to bring? What is it saying to me? And actually, what what good is it? What good has it got? And it did have a lot of good for me because it gave me um, 
something to move towards rather than feeling like I'm this awful person and there's nothing to do there's nothing I can do about it the sense of ugliness gave me an opportunity in my mind to do something about it because I thought well if I can become less ugly then maybe others will love me so it became like my project to become less ugly and to fix my defects so to clear up my skin or to cover up my skin to change my body shape so I could become lovable and actually that project even though it wasn't um helpful in many ways to be so fixated on my appearance it did um it stopped me descending into this sense of there's nothing I can do um I'm ugly I'm awful I'm monstrous and that's it and eventually that led me to well for many years I fought it I didn't want to be feeling ugly so I tried to make myself um look unugly to put it very simply and eventually coming to the point where I really listened to the ugliness and I embraced the ugliness actually and said okay maybe part of my person is that I'm utterly ugly utterly unlovable truly monstrous I'm really feeling and sitting with that as opposed to running from it I'm really listening to it embracing it inviting it in and then finding as many people um with other struggles and since we're making a comparison with hearing voices a lot of people that hear voices find that when they listen to the voices when they invite them in when they stop trying to block them out and um, that they they're very gentle and kind and integrative in nature um, and I found when I invited my ugliness in that actually it was it was my shadow side but it was my wholeness at the same time and what then happened is the sense of ugliness dissipated and I found myself to be totally beautiful and totally lovable at my core. Um, I don't know how well I've explained that, but I feel all struggles of a mental health nature to me feel like an invitation back to wholeness. They feel like a red flag to say something's happened in your life that's somehow diminishing of your worth and somehow um, disbanding of your self-esteem and of your, mm. your sense of your own lovability. And that that can't be allowed to stay because our true nature is that we are lovable, we are good at the very centre of our being. Thank you for the explanation. The bit I'd like to inquire more about is what does it look like to invite that in? Mm. Um, so for years of your life, you were fighting against and pushing away from the idea of being ugly or monstrous. Mm. And then there's this turnaround and of saying, okay, well, what, what does this monster have to say or this sense yeah. of monstrous? And what's the message in that? Could, could you just be a bit descriptive about yeah. what that looked like for you? Yeah. Um, Thank you, which is a really good question. I think, so for many, many years, my act of running from it came out in all the behaviours. And I guess you could say the behaviours are the symptoms and would have been the thing that got me the diagnosis of anorexia and the diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder. So some of those behaviours in terms of the diagnosis of BDD would have been around covering up as a way of running. So closing the curtains in the house, covering up my perceived defects on my skin, wearing scarves around sort of my, my face, um, 
to try and hide and therefore to try to negate that feeling of having to um, have that sense that other people could see and, and know my ugliness. Um, and similarly with the diagnosis of anorexia, my running came in the form of starving myself, of, you know, eating and purging and all of those kind of behaviours that often it lead to a person with that diagnosis. So it's like running, 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 running from, I really don't want to feel like this hideous person, so I need to cover up, I need to hide, I need to change my body. And then the turning around is the opposite of all of that, and it's absolutely terrifying. The turning around is saying, rather than hiding, I'm going to absolutely expose so in the example of my perceived, and then I did have some acne, um, but not to the extent that I perceived that I had, and certainly not to the level of distress that amount would cause perhaps in the general population, maybe. Um, so rather than covering it up, it was about not only not covering it up, but celebrating it, really looking in the mirror and looking at it and thinking this is an aspect of, of who I am and feeling that sense of ugliness that went with it, staying with that sense of ugliness and sort of eyeballing that sense of ugliness, if you like. Um, and through that finding, you know, when you really enter into something like a sense of ugliness, I guess one of two things happen. Either you find that it's really there and it's real, or you find that actually it's the, the very thing you've been running from doesn't even really exist. And certainly I found it didn't exist it had no substance to it it was only a symptom of my needing to run and my needing to run was a symptom of feeling that I was unlovable and my symptom you know my feeling of unlovableness was a symptom of some of the experiences I'd had in my life um, so it's this total opposite of running whatever that might look like for the person in the case of voice hearing it looks like listening to the voices in the case of BDD it might be uncovering the defect looking at the defect making friends with the defect, even celebrating the defect, perceived defect. Um, and particularly feeling the emotions. And that sounds maybe a bit flaky, but it is just sitting and crying and being with, as opposed to um, mm. behaviours that take, take you away from that. Yeah, I found, um, if I can share my own example, perhaps yeah. it resonates. These kind of conditions are um, an invitation to look deeper yeah. when it's embraced. Okay, so when appearance concerns have arisen within me, like maybe a situation in life comes up that causes them to flare particularly. And it always seems to be there's an opportunity there um, to go into my uncertainties and insecurities. Okay, so um, the paranoid thoughts come about and what's just underneath them is this uncertainty of like, I don't really know if I'm lovable. I don't really know if I'm attractive. I don't, and there's this like real fear of that uncertainty. And it's almost easier to um, deal with like negative thoughts insisting on one thing or the other it would be easier to think I was or I wasn't rather than to embrace the scariness of the uncertainty but in that un uncertainty there's the opportunity to look into then well, what is attractiveness where does it come from what is lovability what do I love in other people 
Is it their physical appearance and the position of their cheekbones or the shape of their lips, or is it something deeper than that? Is it the, the personality and how interesting they are, or is it actually something a bit deeper than that again, something to do with the person's essence? And the more um, I would go into these, to move away from having these kind of paranoid certainties to open uncertainties, um, like questions, then they can be gone into and more of a kind of, um, I wouldn't say certainty arises in a, a mind sense, because it's not like I have answers to profound questions like what is lovability, but there's a more of a felt certainty, uh, more of a felt security arises. Um, in, in, it's an invitation to go beyond the superficial into the deep. And that's, I'm just giving the example there with um, appearance concerns, but it could also be like I had a struggle with depression when I was younger and it was the same thing arising. I, I went into myself and found only emptiness. So there's the invitation to ask, well, what's the real value in human life? What's the real value in who I am? And to, through going into that, the thing ultimately transformed. So just to finish on that, um, on that note of transformation then, um, because it's a bit of a, a strange dialogue maybe um, to, to say, okay, like that, that these things, appearance concerns or mental health issues can be ultimately good things. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they're good things when seen in the context of the invitation to look deeper and the transformation that comes from that. So you were just um, alluding to there that when you did go into embracing the sense of um, being ugly, being monstrous, it's not that, you just became comfortable with that and now you carry this monster around with you and you have those thoughts but you're kind of happier with them there is an actual transformation that occurs where the monster changes and becomes something else so you see actually it never really was a monster it was always something more benign than that can you can you speak to the kind of recovery that came about out of the experience of embracing this dark side of yourself yeah i think um Gosh, there's so many things in that. Yeah, this sense of uh, often um, when I'm in, you know, the, the BDD support groups, I'll often repeat um, because it feels that's like one of the best ways of describing it, kind of taking the monster on the street um, as opposed to kind of hiding the monster away and celebrating the monster. And there's something about um, a lack of shame and it is my experience and my hypothesis that um, mental illness, the diagnosis of mental illness and people's exper experiences of mental distress are in some way embedded in a, in a, a very, very deep sense of shame. And that in, in a way that's, that's the thing making the invitation often saying, well, actually, um, are you a shameful person or have things happened to you that are just so against um, your, your own love, lovable nature. So for me, there was an experience of, okay, I'm to, to simplify, I'm a monster. I've spent the last maybe 20 years running away from the sense I'm, I'm a monster. Now I'm going to turn around and it's not just as simple as a little decision one day. I think I'll turn around and embrace the monster. You know, it's sort of born out of there's nowhere left to go. Um, 
it can also be a decision born out of another place but for me it was born out of I just I've tried everything and I'm kind of on my last thread here um turning around and embracing the monster men on a very practical level allowing myself to feel the shame to feel the guilt to feel the unlovability and then it's not then that the shame the guilt and the lovability kind of poof they vanish into some kind of um white light and and there are rainbows and and angels singing it would have been quite nice maybe um but then there is a sense of the shame the guilt merging into or becoming part of that whole experience of what it is to be human and finding that that experience of what it is to be human includes facets like having experiences of shame, having experiences of guilt, having experiences of not being wanted, being abandoned, having experiences of not being loved. But that that is not um, the is not the beingness. The beingness is is love, and is um, it's all of those things, but it's not any one of those things at the same time. It's, it's really the sense of integration of, um, yeah, I'm the, excuse my language, but I'm the bitch and I'm the angel. Yes. I'm, the, I'm the goodness and the badness. I'm the darkness and the light. I'm the, um, I'm the poet and the mystic, and I'm the um, angsty teenager. Um, all of those things. Um, but none, none of those things mean that I'm, I need to feel shameful or to hide myself away in any way. You know, it's just a, an invitation to just celebrate all of those things and in all of those things find that life is so fascinating and exciting. And um, there's something really, really cool about being allowed to be um, at the age now of nearly 35, the angsty teenager or being allowed to be um, the person who gets really angry irrationally sometimes or mm. you know, it's all just it's all okay thank you for that nicole i am um, at one point i wanted to touch on that you sort of went into there of the, the bitch and the angel um thing i find it it's intriguing to me to look at it mythically um, and see some of the the archetypal images that um something like body dysmorphia would throw up would be like mm. the monster or the witch is another one yeah. you hear around appearance, right? So if you look at um, who those characters are mythically, monsters are very strong, powerful creatures, as well as maybe being destructive, maybe not. And witches have a different, more feminine kind of power rooted in uh, wisdom and magic. Um, and they get portrayed as being ugly and evil creatures sometimes too, but that's not inherent indeed we saw a transformation in the representation of the witch from like the 60s or 70s onwards of what was that bewitched was the show um where there was a a kind of beautiful young witch then so it's you could see it as like a transformation of society's view of powerful feminine energy if you if you wanted to so i think it's it's interesting that on these kind of mythical heroes journeys the the hero will often encounter um a lumbering great beast at some mm-hmm. at some point which looks like um it's going to be a, a hindrance on the way um but ends up joining the company and it, it ends up having some great value like um ludo in the labyrinth films mm-hmm. say who um i think sarah's companion initially advises her to leave him alone because he's useless and 
Um, he's going to be get us all into trouble. And then he, he has this power over rocks and nature, which becomes essential on the quest. And um, you can see those kind of beasts as being either symbolic of the body on our soul's journey through life or symbolic of some earthy part of ourselves, which we are inclined to reject. So, um, yeah, I feel like I wanted to get my little thing about myth in there. <laughs> I think it's really important. And I think looking through that lens, you know, so many stories, I think, you know, one of my favourites as a child was um, The Wizard of Oz. And, um, and, you know, you watch the film and the film went very, very, very far from the original book. Um, you know, both very beautiful. In the original book, for me, it was a much clearer that you know all of the characters that Dorothy meets along the way are facets of her personality. You know, you've got the lion, you've got the courage, the lion's courage, and then you've got the scarecrow's kind of terror and fear. And or oh, is the lion courageous? No, he's not, is he? The lion's courage. The scarecrow is is brains. And, and the tin man's tin heart. Tin man's heart, yeah. Yeah. So, all, but how all of these facets of herself are necessary on her journey. It's not like she could um, relinquish any one of those. And actually, the lion finds his courage, doesn't he? But actually, doesn't have that courage at the beginning of the story, or at least seems to be quite afraid of many things. If I remember correctly, he finds his courage, and then the um, the wizard at the end, he he gives them things which represent those qualities but don't actually bring them so he gives the lion a medal okay mm. but it's really symbolic because a medal doesn't actually make you courageous so it's actually the journey that made yeah. the lion courageous and gave the tin man heart not the clock that the, the wizard gives him yeah yeah absolutely and so I yeah a lot of sorry no I, th I think it's a lovely way to look at things and i think you could you could look at these journeys through through that lens, if you like, um, you know, and to see that BDD or that part of, you know, to go back to my own experience, to see that part of my life where I perceive my own ugliness. Um, yeah, for that to be a facet on the journey of, of my wholeness, even though it was very painful at the time, and to be an invitation to um, an integration of all of these pieces i thought it was really nice the other evening richard when we had our um online mindfulness and body dysmorphic disorder group and a lady shared that sufi tale or we thought it might be a sufi tale of um somebody looking for their keys and, and then another person comes to help them and this you know it then transpires actually they didn't drop the keys where they were looking for them they're looking for them in the light on the light side of the road but actually drop them over on the, the side without any street lights. But of course they're looking for them there because the light is there. And this idea that we're always looking for ourselves or often we look for ourselves in the light. And that's what I was trying to do in a way. I was trying to make myself beautiful because then I could find myself in that beauty and in that light. Whereas the invitation was to go over to the dark side, if you like, and find, um, find that I was there as well. Um, and that that was okay. So, yeah, it was very, very interesting. And just to go back to this um, notion that we kind of started with around disorder um, and illness and psychiatric diagnosis. I think, what was I just thinking about that as we were talking about Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz? Just pause for a moment to remember.
I think that's what I was thinking, in that disorder implies that something has gone wrong, doesn't it? It's like we had order and everything was going on, an, on a good track and then suddenly we had disorder and then therefore something is wrong. Um, and I wonder how useful it might be to see actually this isn't something that's gone wrong, this is a response to life. It's the same response to an insane reality. And part of that current insane reality is wider societal appearance expectations on top of any kind of family or school or other experiences people might have had that have led them to question their appearance. Um, but this isn't something that's gone wrong. This is a response in some way to life and quite a sane response actually. It makes a lot of sense given what the people, person's experiences have been. And therefore, it's not something to be afraid of or to be um, shunned or to be run away from, or as you say, to be stuffed down necessarily with medication. And some people find medication helpful, I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with it. Um, but perhaps we can look at that story and see actually what is the invitation to integration here, rather than it being a, a disorder, something wrong with a person. Okay, Nicole, thank you very much for that. It's a um, really interesting conversation. I hope people out there find it interesting too. And we'll pick up on some other themes following on soon. Yeah. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Bye.